your prospect knows your intention, whether you're hiding it or not. They know your intention. If your intention is to improve their life and you are passionate about that, they're gonna feel that. If your intention is to make the next commission, they're gonna feel that as well. And now you're gonna have to have done a different sales job. You're gonna have to get them wanting you to do that. And the truth is most of them are not gonna do that. Most of them are gonna see the insincerity and they're gonna go, no, we'll find another way. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Hey, listeners of the podcast, we've put together an exciting community where you can dive deeper into the content of every single episode. And for those of you who join this community from the podcast, we'll give you an access to a course we've just put together worth $500, all yours for free, while we're sending this out to our listeners of the podcast. Simply go to sellingwithlove.com forward slash podcast to be eligible to get this course for free. And we look forward to seeing you in the community. Thanks again for listening. And now, Enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everybody, to the Selling with Love podcast. We are in for an amazing treat today. We are going to have someone who has so much amazing experience in business and in public speaking that we're going to get a chance to see how do we see the skills that he's evolved being a business owner, a public speaker, a man who has had such an influence in my life, not only in the way that I get to come here and speak to you on this podcast with such comfort and ease, which comes from so much of the training that I've received from him on how to communicate better, but also I've been someone who's extremely active, like to participate in Spartan races, and I'm so conscious about what I eat because I've been a fellow student of his flagship program that I've had a chance to graduate from, WildFit. Some of you who are familiar with this program, really a way to re-educate yourself around what fitness, nutrition, lifestyle is all about. And I really love that Eric, whenever it is that he touches, he has this sort of little magic that happens to it. And I'm so excited that he's going to be coming here to share. He's a returning guest to the podcast. We'll put some show notes to some of his past talks that he's done around running a business, entrepreneurship. But today, I really wanted to focus on something that happens when you build multiple businesses, go into different industries, is the common thread that comes in every single business you start, which is sales is required. And I want to tap into Eric's mind as to what was his views in sales from the early stage? Is it something that he's always embraced? Is it something that he developed? And just understanding that journey and how it can help us as well if we are in the process of building a business and the role that sales will play in the process. Eric, welcome back to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm looking forward. We're going to have fun. You know, what's funny is like, even before we hit the record button, we were kind of having some like sales conversations about some interesting ways that we can do this. And it's a very comfortable topic when I speak with you about sales. And for some people, sales seems like an awkward thing or it's a weird thing. And I wanted to just start with that. Like, have you always had a comfortable association with sales? Is it something that came naturally to you? I have to give a mixed answer to that is that no, emotionally, it didn't come easily to me because I had some of the same blockages that a lot of people have. Strangely, we humans often have this tendency to attach our self-identity to the response of a prospect. So when a prospect says no, we don't feel the no against the product or against the service. We take the no personally. Matter of fact, it's the same kind of resistance that somebody has to say like, 
going up to a girl and asking her out. Like, it's amazing that we're willing to sacrifice the potential, whatever that relationship might have been, over the five seconds of rejection that we might have faced. And the same thing happens in sales, obviously. On the other side, while I was uncomfortable with that, I had a very entrepreneurial mind as a kid. So I lived on quite a busy road in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And what I would routinely do is sell stuff in front of my house. And of course, when the winter came, I would go door to door and knock on doors and sell snow removal services. I'd shovel sidewalks. And in the fall, when the leaves came down, I would fill up garbage bags full of leaves from the neighbors. And as a matter of fact, I had a really interesting sales lesson from that is that I went to go to this guy's house. I raked up all the leaves and he came out when I was halfway through the job because I was charging by the bag. And he came up and lifted one of the bags up. And he's like, this bag is light. You know, you're not packing as much into the bag as you could. And of course, in my head, I'm like, the bag looks full, right? It looks full because it's full of fluffy leaves. But then he's like, no, look, you can pack it down like this and get like twice as many leaves in it. And on one side, I'm immediately, I'm like nine or 10 years old. And I'm thinking, yeah, but that's like twice as much work for half the money. But the guy then said to me, he goes, but here's the deal is if you pack these bags full, then you'll develop a reputation. Your clients will see you packing it full and then they will know that paying by the bag is absolutely worth it because you're really creating value. And from then on, I went out and packed the bags full and guess what? It boosted business. Like people like, this kid works so hard and then I got tips and it was amazing. So I guess I had a resistance to it like many people, but I had a grander purpose and that was I wanted to make money and I enjoyed adding value for people. So that pushed me to overcome whatever nervousness I felt about selling. Yeah. I often associate the fear that we have around selling often to the fear that some of us have when it comes to public speaking. There's that vulnerability that is required for you to show up and maybe speak your mind without knowing if you'll get full acceptance. Is that a parallel that you often make as well? Or do you see some fundamental differences? I think that in a very real sense, it's the same thing, only some people will be more freaked out by the rejection of one and other people will be more freaked out by the you know potential rejection of 200. So, you know, if you think about when somebody's afraid of public speaking, what they're really afraid of, I mean, because they're not afraid of death or injury, right? I mean, it's not like that anymore. So what are they really afraid of? They're afraid of some level of social rejection. And so what is being afraid of sales? Well, it's afraid of public speaking to one or to two or three, depending on the room that you're selling to. So I'd say it's rooted in some of the very same stuff and it has a great deal to do with self-esteem issues and it has a great deal to do with perspective problems. So we talk to our WildFit coaches quite a lot about this because some of them, I mean, they're so committed to helping people turn their life around, reverse their diabetes, lose weight and all that kind of stuff, but then they feel afraid to sell. And I'm like, well, hold on a second now. What if you just did this? What if you looked at your prospect? What if you looked at that prospect and you imagined two futures for that prospect? One is the future where you didn't help and what the long-term effects of their obesity and diabetes and all this kind of stuff might be. And the other one is where you did help and how different their life is, the quality of life, the money they'd save, the suffering they avoided, the longer they live potentially. Now I want you to weigh up the difference in that against the what, 45 seconds of rejection you might feel. So are you really going to hold back saving this person's life to avoid 45 seconds of rejection that you're gonna have forgotten about by the time you have breakfast tomorrow morning? And that perspective often shifts gears for people. Oh, that's a powerful framing. I absolutely love it. I think that 
in the moment it feels very paralyzing and then when you give it perspective as you say you realize the impact of you not taking action and i'm hoping for anybody listening here you know what is the value that you're looking to provide and if sales seems to be the barrier i think this example shared by eric is a powerful way to give yourself perspective and well i'll clap a little bit and congratulate you you're already listening to a sales podcast so you are learning you are taking the steps in the right direction but eric is funny i also have a story from my youth, which is I was going door to door and selling chocolate for charity it was the world's greatest chocolate. I know you've probably seen that in Canada as well. It's like those chocolate covered almonds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that. Right. Their marketing was it was the world's greatest chocolate, which was a scam. It was delicious, but not the world's best, right? It was still processed, mass produced, all that stuff, but it was a charity run, right? And I remember that's my origin story I usually share about going how I'm going door to door and, you know, selling chocolate, knocking, seeing people being excited about buying chocolate. I wasn't so wild fit back then, Eric, so please don't judge me. But that was like my early experience with doing sales was going door to door. You talk about how you've had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit, this hustle kind of mindset. Was that something that was like encouraged by your parents, your community? Or is it something that you were just weird from the other people? Like, why is it that that seems to be the origin story for a lot of us that find that comfort in sales? It is an interesting thing. No, I don't believe that it was. Neither of my parents at that stage were particularly entrepreneurial. My mom later became like quite entrepreneurial in her approach to life and business and what have you. But at that stage, I would say that my mom was, I mean, she was president of a union. She was, you know, like last in line for entrepreneurial spirit. My dad was a lawyer. There was none of that. And there was no real entrepreneurship in the family that I really related to. But there were little things that kind of gave a boost. And I think schools get a bad rap these days because, well, you know, I think there's a lot of things that kids learn in school that now we have to help them unlearn. And I do think there are some modifications that need to be made. But schools are also the place or, you know, Boy Scouts or Girl Guides and that kind of stuff where people are asked to go and sell. And sometimes it's to raise money, like, you know, going off and selling the chocolate was for a charity and what have you. And I went to a boarding school in Stony Plain, Alberta, and we made honey. And the way that worked is that the student body made the honey. And then when we sold the honey, the money from that went towards student body activities, like if we wanted to go do a ski trip for the school or what have you. And so we would drive into Edmonton on a weekend, we would go knock doors and knock on doors doing door to door selling of jars of honey. One of the things that I think is difficult these days is that I mean, this is a little on the edge of controversy, but when I'm looking at enrolling my children in school, I look very carefully at the school rules and regulations. And if they use the word safety anywhere other than in the realm of physical safety, I don't want my kid going there. I don't want them protecting my kid from safe language and this kind of stuff. And I think that one of the things that school used to do for us is it pushed us into things that didn't feel safe. It did not feel safe to go and knock on doors. And by the way, if people think that might be irresponsible today, the UN reports that crimes against children are half today what they were in the 1970s. So like it's safer now than it ever was, but most kids are not being pushed to do that kind of thing in the same way. And the trouble is most of what is rewarding in life is uncomfortable for the first 15% of it. It's just how it is. Just about everything worth doing. You want to learn a new sport, a new skill, a new trade. The first 15% is awkward and messy and difficult. And I think that some of us that were pushed to do those things in school, I think that we got through that 15% by force. And so later in business, we were the ones that were able to step up and take action in those areas. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with the safe environment space saying that 
if we're trained to just play safe and also in school, you know, and I don't want to bash against schools too. I'm glad of the upgrading that I had, but I often make a remark that I'll do a training and I'll say, okay, who here were my A students, right? And everyone who's an A student, I'm like, hey, listen, sales will feel difficult to you because you're expecting to have an 80% plus grade on your prospecting or on your sales performance. And guess what? Your top grade might be a 20%, which is not a number you've ever faced in your life. And so the rejections come more often. And like you said, we got a chance to develop maybe a tougher skin or going through those initial adjusting parameters of what success looks like. And so you've taken this, you've went and applied this in every business. We need to embody sales. In your first business, did you feel like sales was something that you initially struggled with? Is it something that, you know, you were like, okay, I've done, I've graduated from my childhood, you know, hustles. So getting into this business, this is coming already naturally. And how did that unfold? Before I started my business, I was working for a tech startup in Vancouver, Canada, and I was the first salesperson. Well, they'd had a few before me, but none of them had worked. So I was the first one that worked. And then we grew the company very heavily after that, once we found that sales model that worked and, and what have you. And, and you know, as is often the way in these situations, the shares and equity that I was promised as a founding member, the owner decided to reconsider his position about that. And so one day I just resigned. and. You know, I was in a tough position. I was in another country and I had accepted this, you know, this relocation to England. And all of a sudden I don't have a job and I'm kind of freaking out about what's next in my life. And circumstances led to me starting my own business because I couldn't get a work visa. I wasn't even legally allowed to be in the UK working because I had quit my job. So now I had to start a business, right? And I still distinctly remember I lived in this little house in a little cul-de-sac in Rinkton in the west of England, just outside Bristol. And I was sitting in my house sitting on the carpet with a glass table and I'm doing business planning and designing logos and stuff like that. And I kept having this voice in the back of my head going, well, none of this shit matters if you don't sell some stuff, right? Yeah, but I got to get it right. I got to get the website up. I got to, and this voice kept in, none of this shit matters if you don't sell some stuff. And so I got out to about two weeks and I started facing the economic reality of, oh my God, you know, I actually do have to sell some stuff. And so immediately I started working on that and I learned some really powerful things about that. You know, one of the most powerful things for me was recognizing that when you start a business, you often have to do many, many different jobs. And if you have any emotional resistance to selling, you're going to find a way to procrastinate it all the time. You're going to find a way to not make that phone call, not make that next lead. You know, you're going to find a way and then you're going to go out of business like four out of five businesses will go out of business. Like it's a terrible success rate. But then the next bit of math that I found really interesting is one day I was taking a look and I'd sold a contract and I had a project and I had to fix all these computers and I had to change the, the chips in the back of them. And it was like 900 computers, four screws per case. I mean, it was a lot of work to do. And so I suddenly thought about this, hold on a second. When I'm in the sales room, I'm generating about $800 an hour in sales. When I'm in the warehouse and I'm screwing these screws in and I'm changing that, I'm saving myself about $15 an hour <laughs> in not hiring somebody. That's not good math. That, that's some terrible math. And so I hired my first employee at that point and went off and I sold while he did that. And of course, what I made in the difference was the margin. And of course, that one decision was what made the difference in me being able to one day sell that business because I had very quickly learned that if I put my effort where it was best, and in that case, because I had some experience and comfort and training and sales, I really needed to focus there. Do you think that's the case for everyone? Like if you're starting a business and like the sales just seems to be the thing you resist the most, you've just, you're kicking and screaming and procrastinating as you were mentioning. Like I sometimes think like someone like me, someone like you, I understand and I know sales will be the highest leverage activity that I can do. For others, it's like, 
they're automatically trying to find someone they could hire to sell for them. And I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like there's a bit of a, I don't know if it's going to work as much if you do that. I don't know if you share a different opinion. You know, it absolutely can work. I've done it. And the truth is, if you want real entrepreneurial freedom, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to bring in people that can sell. And you're going to have to hope that you can find people that are even better than you. You're going to have to hope for that, right? But what I would suggest, though, is that when people are struggling with the kind of sales mentality or what have you, I'll put it this way. Everybody is in sales. Everybody. There's nobody who isn't in sales. If you're a housewife or husband and you're staying at home and raising your kids, you are constantly selling your kids on eating better food. You're selling your kids on getting their homework done. You're selling your kids on getting up in the morning. It's all a form of selling, right? So everybody has to be in sales in some way. I mean, or you could just use brute force as a parent, but that's not going to endear you much to your kids. And it's not going to train them very well to become good adults. You want them to make good decisions and you're going to have to sell them on that concept. If you are wanting to become the CFO of a company, what do you think a job interview is? It's sales. You have to go in there and sell yourself. So I would say this, if you want to work in sales, you need to be a moderately good salesperson. If you don't want to work in sales, you have to be an incredible salesperson because you're going to make a fewer sales and you want those sales to be bigger. So if I want to go and sell myself into a job, say I want to go get myself a job as the general manager or the CFO or the operations manager, a non-sales position, I better be damn good at sales or I'm going to get a shitty salary. I'm not going to get a good benefits package and I might not even get the job. So if you don't want to sell, you have to be an outstanding salesperson to get the right job. If you are happy to be in sales, then you only need to be moderately good because you're going to get a lot of practice and you're going to get better and better and better and better. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. Especially if you're at the early stages, I don't think you get, like you said, because it's the highest value activity, hiring a salesperson when you're low on cash is going to be just mathematically risky. And so I think it's just one of those things, as you mentioned earlier, if you give yourself perspective to know how valuable and important it is, you can overcome it. And as practice for anything, we will get better at it. We will overcome that fear. There's a very important distinction about hiring salespeople, though. Very, very important. Salespeople, especially when they're new, they're human and they have a resistance to rejection, right? Unless they've had it trained out of them, they have a resistance to rejection. So here's how most people hire a salesperson. Let's use telesales, but it could be face-to-face. -face, it could be retail. It doesn't really matter, but let's just use telesales because that's the example that where I discovered this is that you hire somebody, you bring them in and you give them a script or something. You give them a list they have to go through and they're going to call the leads. They're going to, you know, however you've scheduled the logistics, they're going to jump on these sales calls. But the very first few sales calls they jump on, they're going to be nervous about that because it's all new. Even if they're pretty seasoned, they're going to be nervous about it because it's all new. The script is new. The phone system is new. The office is new. So all this stuff is new. And so there's going to be a degree of nervous about that. Now, here's the problem. If you think about Pavlov's dogs, here's what's going on. This new salesperson has all these feelings of nervousness and novelty and is picking up the phone and making phone calls and emotionally linking the nervousness to the phone call process from the beginning, right from the beginning. And you're forcing them, you're going to make a call now. And then, then we make it worse and go, and by the way, I'm going to listen in on the other line. I'm going to stand and watch you, right? I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to stand and watch you. You're going to be observed during this process, which just heightens the nerves. So now you've 
created a peak emotional state of nervousness and apprehension while they're touching the phone, while they're dialing the phone, while they're listening to the phone, which means in a very strong Pavlovian sense, you go, make them feel nervous, touch the phone, make them feel nervous, touch the phone, make them feel nervous, touch the phone. Pretty soon it's touch the phone, feel nervous. And now you wonder why it is that three months later, you've got this salesperson, he's talented, she's talented, they're good at it, but they don't make as many calls as they could because on a very core level, they've linked a negative emotion to the phone. Instead, if you think really carefully about the training process, what I would do is I brought the salespeople in and I said, now you're gonna listen to this person do their calls and you are not to make any phone calls. You're not to make any sales calls at all. I don't care how ready you feel, you're not doing it. And so they sit and they listen and they listen and they listen and they listen and they ask questions and they listen some more. And then that goes by for a whole week. And by this point, they're like, Jesus, I mean, I've heard enough. I've heard hundreds of calls now. I'm ready to make a call. They come in on Monday and you're like, no. Now you're going to listen to Jim. Sally's good, but you're going to listen to Jim, another approach. And they're going to listen and listen and listen and listen. And you're thinking, yeah, but they could be making me money right now. They're not selling. They're just listening. And I'm paying them to listen. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what's going to happen? At some point on roughly Wednesday at 426 in the afternoon, after a week and a half of listening, they're going to come into your office and like, listen, I got to make some calls. I'm sick of listening. I want to make phone calls. And that way, the first time they pick up the phone, they're doing it with a sense of drive and passion and excitement and intrigue and adventure. And those emotions will be linked up to the phone. And that person will make 50% more phone calls for the rest of their career with you because you paid attention to the psychological training process. Ooh, that is ninja. I also have to say, I don't want to say too much, but I feel like I've went through an experience of a training with you that might have used some similar mind-inducing techniques to really change powerful behaviors. But I'll leave it at that. For those of you who are wondering what I'm talking about, all I'm going to say is in the show notes, you'll see some links to some of the things that Eric does, whether it's business training, public speaking, or nutrition education. Definitely go dive into everything that he does. Not only is he a man that is extremely well-knowledged about how to operate a business, teach public speaking, and the nutrition, but also is so good at making you change behaviors and adapt what you've learned and put it into your life, into practice and truly transform. I want to give you that, Eric, because this is something you've done for me so well, and I'm so grateful to it. Cheers. Thank you. I also have to make a little parallel because I did telesales as one of my first sales jobs. And I had an experience which was maybe in between what you just said and what your first example was, because the moment I picked up the phone the first time, I read the script. I was having all those emotions you were telling me, the nervousness. And the moment I first said my line, the person just said, okay, thank you. And they hung up on me and I got terrified. And what happened then? Boom. My boss walked in and he's like, whoa, what's wrong with you? I was all red. I was sweating. And he just bursts out laughing. And he was a good sales guy and he just bursts out laughing. He's like, did they hang up on you? That is hilarious. Don't worry. You just experienced the worst. Now everything else is going to be easier from there. Go have fun. You're not fired or, or, or reprimanded for this. He's like, I'm glad you just had the worst first. And I'm pretty sure he might have placed that lead first to do that specifically for me. Now I'll be wondering forever. <laughs> so Eric, one of the things I wanted to ask as a question, and I'm not sure if you have a similar opinion to me which is oftentimes, especially for people getting into services business, whether it's a coaching consultants, and you're kind of building your own business and you still have that resistance to sales. Sometimes I scratch my head and I almost feel like recommending to these people to go get a sales job before even building their business or being a coach themselves, because the learning curve of doing it yourself, the fact that you can't have the volume that you get when you work for an organization makes it so much slower. Would you think that's a good strategy? Would you have a different approach? I think that that could be a good strategy. And 
obviously that in a sense is what happened to me. I mean, my school made me go and sell door to door and I was already doing it as a kid. And then I went and got a job like professionally for two and a half years, knocking on doors and what have you. And so I think that that training, like the truth of the matter is, is I didn't go to university. I instead got into selling. But what I got was basically if they offered it, I got a degree. I would even argue, excuse the implied arrogance, but I got a PhD in it. I mean, think about it. It was minus 15 outside, minus 20 outside. I was very motivated to make the sale because it meant that I could go inside to the warm. I had to figure that stuff out. So yeah, I do think that when somebody is young and eager and getting started, going out and selling could be a really great education. But at the same time, you know, I think what it comes down to is the clarity and passion for the business they wanna start. So if they have a tremendous clarity and passion for the business they wanna start, then why not cut their teeth selling that? You know, like get out there because I will say this, that passion will numb rejection, passion will override fear, passion will create deeper attraction. So if somebody has a really strong passion for what they're doing, then they should go sell that because that passion is in itself infectious. And as I said, it's anesthetic. Like if you have a tremendous passion and somebody doesn't buy from you, you feel sorry for them. <laughs> I mean, that, honest to goodness, like with WildFit, I mean, look, I started as a hobby coaching business about 10 years ago. Now some 50,000 people around the world have done this program in over a hundred countries. And I can tell you that to this day, I bump into somebody on a plane and you know, you get into the conversation of what do you do for a living? Okay, I feel bad about this, but I'm sitting in the plane and there's a gentleman who had accumulated a little extra body size than would be ideal for flying. And he's coming down the aisle. And I hate to say this, but I'm sitting there going, not next to me, not next to me, please not next to me. Cause he's gonna spill over into my seat, I know it. And he, no kidding, the universe lines him up and he slides right into my seat right beside me. And then he spills over the arm of my chair and like, and I'm sitting there and I'm going, and I have to sit like this for the next four or five hours. But then, I did what you're supposed to do in sales. I became empathetic. I stopped being selfish. I stopped thinking about me. And I thought about this poor guy. He's sitting with his arms like this because he knows that if he relaxes, his arms will spill to the sides and then his arm will end up in my lap. And I know he's sitting there feeling self-conscious about how his weight is and the people are judging him and how he knows that he's making me uncomfortable. And I all of a sudden I tapped into all that. Very important key in sales, in my opinion, is to tap into the prospect. So I turned to him and I go, they just don't make these seats big enough for any of us, so don't worry about it. And I didn't say for him, I said for any of us, like they're just not big enough. And he goes, yeah, tell me about it. And I said, listen, just relax. Let's put the seat up. I can move over a little. Let's put the arm up and you're gonna be a little more comfortable. Just chill out, don't worry about it. Now he totally relaxes and we have a conversation. I ask him what he does for a living. He's like, I fly all the time. I'm in corporate sales, blah, blah, blah. He then does what? Now, by the way, notice I didn't try to sell anything. Notice that all I did is apply some empathy and a concern for him. And then I started asking him questions and I started listening. Those are all the first steps to selling anyway. I may not have intended it that way, but that's what's going on. Then since I asked him what he does for a living, what's he gonna do? He's gonna ask me what I do for a living. And I said, well, as it turns out, I help people change the relationship with food and that sort of stuff. And he's like, no kidding. That's something I've been struggling with my whole life. Now, at this point, it's a sales conversation, right? But here's what I want you to know. If I fail, to help this guy. I don't feel rejection. I feel sorrow for him. I feel like I've let him down. 
that type of passion makes you a phenomenal salesperson. So I would say that if somebody has a business, an idea, a concept that they're tremendously passionate about, go sell that. Read every sales book, read Zig Ziglar, pay attention to your podcast, read There's No F in Sales, great book by my friend Simon Leslie, go and study sales and sell the thing you're passionate about. But if you're still kind of lost and confused, it's kind of like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I'm going to go study marine biology in university. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe first find out what you're passionate about. If you don't have that passion, then go and learn a skill that works in every area of life. And that happens to be sales. Beautifully put, Eric. I've called out a few of my own students because like one of the reasons you are able to show up that way is number one, you have a great product. You have a system that transforms. You've seen it happen. You've consistently produced the results. And so when it comes to selling, there's no fear or resistance that you'll disappoint the person because you know you'll have all the tools, the best disposal to be able to help them transform. And I've gently pointed a fact for some of my students, which was, are you more afraid that they're going to reject you? Or are you more afraid that they're going to say yes, and you won't deliver on what you promised? And that becomes a sensitive point when it comes to sales. So sales often becomes the scapegoat for the lack of success when sometimes you have to go back to the product, which brings me to your early days of WildFit because now I know it's an amazing product. You have case studies, you've refined the process and it's beautiful, but you started somewhere. And for some people, when they're starting, they're like, well, I can't sell confidently because I don't have the case studies. I'm just getting started and my product isn't perfect yet. Yeah, that's a tricky stage when you're developing something yourself. There's no question about it. When I started WildFit, I had one big advantage, and that was that it was a hobby. I wasn't starting it to build this huge business or whatever. I was starting it as a hobby, and I was starting it for experimental purposes. I wanted to test the theories. And I knew that what I needed to do is go and get results to do that. And so the very first class that I did, I sought out volunteers. I didn't sell them the seats in this traditional sense of making them pay. But hey, hang on a second. Something you gotta remember is that doesn't mean I didn't have to sell them. I still had to sell them. In fact, funny thing is when you're offering something for free, you almost have to be a better salesperson because if it's free, it's like, whoa, 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 why? why? Why is it free, right? So I still had to sell and I had to sell with the confidence in my belief rather than the confidence in my results. I had a very strong belief that it was going to work. I had a very strong concept that it was going to work, but I didn't have the, let's say, you know, empirical data or proof at that point. And in that case, it was really a matter of, look, I really believe this is going to work. I think the truth matters. I wouldn't sell anything that I didn't have at least that level of belief in, you know, and of course the first three classes, I now went from conceptual belief to certainty that I know that this works. And of course, that makes the selling process a little easier. Yeah. I think you touched on something. Two things actually that I pick up from that is number one, you know, you had that inherent belief. And I think it's worth taking a chance when you've got the right ingredients. Maybe you've had some life experiences or some certifications and you have the best of intention. I think it's worth taking a risk. You know, it's just like getting in any relationship, you're going to show up with your best foot forward. You're going to take care of the people. And I have no doubts that if you're already listening to a podcast called Selling with Love, you're trying to do some good in the world, right? But there's another thing is the fact that it was a hobby means you didn't need to be desperate. You didn't need to be needy. You didn't need to rely on the sale for life or death or for substance. And I think that actually makes a big energetic shift. I think sometimes if you're going into, you know, starting the business and having to do sales and you need that sale to happen, then you become a little too needy, desperate, and you're clinging on to any prospect that walks your way. And I would say that because people in that situation might have found themselves in an industry, which I'm sorry, I am going to take a little dab at it, but I'll say MLM 
will happen to be a bit predatory on getting people that are in a more desperate state, which then you become needy, you go to friends and family, and it's kind of the business model has no problem. But the fact that the people that ends up going selling might be coming across too needy. And I think having that buffer is a very big necessity to come from a place of love, as I would say. There's a really great scene in the show Better Call Saul. I've only ever seen three episodes of it, but in one of the early episodes, Saul is a, you know, a fifth rate lawyer and he's trying, he's starving and he can't pay the rent and he's getting kicked out of his office. I don't remember the whole, but he's basically up against the wall financially. And he's talking to this couple and they're definitely going to need legal representation because of some event that's coming down the pipe. And he's sitting in a cafe talking to them and he's describing, look, a lawyer is something you want to have in advance. You don't want to get it after the fact. I'm here to help you now. And he's doing this whole sales pitch and then he slides the contract across the table. And he's like, so all you guys have to do is sign this here and you've got the official retainer letter signed. And I can start preparing your case now. And he slides it across the table, but now you're in that moment of truth. Are they going to sign? This is the sales pitch. Are they going to actually sign? You know, the producers and the directors of photography for Breaking Bad and Better Call, they're phenomenal. So they shoot these incredible angles and they come in and they show the husband and the husband is looking at the contract, reading the contract. The wife, they look at the wife and the wife is looking straight at Saul. She's not looking at the contract. She's looking straight at Saul. Again, sometimes men are after the details and logic and the women are after the emotional connection, right? Makes sense. I'm not saying it's like that all the time. I'm just saying sometimes it's like that. Now the woman is looking straight at Saul. So then the camera does a super tight shot in on Saul and they're right in on him, really close in. And then you see his eye go like this and a little bit of sweat. And you begin to realize that this sale is so important to him because he needs the money. And that takes the sincerity out of it. And she pushes the contract back across the table and she goes, no, we're gonna find somebody else. And then he tries to give his business card to the husband. Oh yeah, you guys should think about it overnight anyway. You should think about it overnight. Tries to hand the business card to the husband because he sees he's got the sale there. Wife grabs and go, yeah, don't call us. We'll call you effectively. And what happens in that scene is one of the most powerful lessons in sales. And that is that your prospect knows your intention, whether you're hiding it or not. They know your intention. If your intention is to help them grow their business, if your intention is to help them lose weight, if your intention is to improve their life and you are passionate about that, they're going to feel that. If your intention is to make the next commission, they're going to feel that as well. And now you're going to have to have done a different sales job. You're going to have to get them wanting you to do that. And I worked for a sales organization that did that. We would actually use our sales. Oh, if you buy from me, I get to go to Hawaii. I mean, that's the most manipulative rubbish in the world. But if you don't have that kind of passion for the product or service, then you're going to have to get the client to want you to make money to get to make the sale. And the truth is, most of them are not going to do that. Most of them are going to see the insincerity and they're going to go, no, we'll find another way. Eric, you are one of the most perfect guests I could bring on this show because you speak the same language with the same mindset. And that's exactly what I love to hear is understanding that that emotional exchange happens in every sale and you have to come from that place of love. That is exactly what I'm hearing from you. I'm so glad that you're reinforcing it. And honestly, this has been a fantastic conversation through and through. I wanted to just close just some personal news on you and just, you know, sharing what's something exciting happening to you. 2023 is around the corner. What's some of the big things on the horizon that you're excited about? Yeah, after three years of hiatus, our speaking academy is back online and I'm super excited about that. I'm not selling it, it's sold out, but I'm super excited that we get to do that in Tallinn at the end of the month. 
And this is sort of unofficial, but I don't mind sharing it with you on your podcast. It's, but I've been working on a number of books that I know you're aware of, and it looks like we have uh, publication dates. So we've got a book coming out at about a year from now and another one about a year after that. So I'm very, very excited after all these, all my friends have been, you gotta, you gotta write a book, you gotta write a book. And I'm like, you know what I think I'll do? I'll go create some real world results. And then when I have a book, people will already wanna buy it. It'll make it easier to sell. And by the way, there's an important lesson in that. I think this is important. The word selling, you can use it in two different ways. You can use it as like, I'm selling something in this moment. Somebody's giving me money and I'm selling something in this moment. But the other version of the word selling is convincing. Convincing, right? So in other words, when you're selling someone on an idea, you're convincing them on an idea. When you're selling somebody a service because they're buying it, the convincing's already done. So the word is these two different meanings. And what I wanna suggest is that if you build a strong enough value proposition, you build enough attraction, you build an, you, with your passion, with your real world results, then you will need to do less of the convincing selling and you will get to do more of the transaction selling. Amen to that, Eric. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your message. All you listeners, you're going to want to re-listen to this one. Tons of nuggets. If you've been watching on YouTube, then you got to see us interact. We did a couple of visual references. So definitely have a look at the video if you listen to the audio only. This is one to be put on repeat. Eric, once again, thank you so much for coming. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. All the best with your project. I was very jealous for all the people who get to experience you live once again for the public speaking training. It's something I've went through and had transformational results. I'll make sure for everybody here, show notes will include some links to follow Eric, see all his programs. Make sure you follow him and connect with him on the socials. And of course, his books are going to be coming out. Those are going to be things you'll want to pick up. Thank you, everybody. And keep selling with love. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save